Support for WIPR's podcasts comes from Brightview Senior Living. Since 1999, Brightview has proudly served Greater Baltimore with vibrant, independent living, assisted living, memory care, and enhanced care. Find a community near you at brightviewseniorliving.com. I never thought about the fact that there were women behind bars, let alone pregnant people. I had so many questions. What kind of prenatal care did she get? Did she get any? And I was knee-deep in conversation when all of a sudden there was this commotion. And I saw these multiple flashes. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Stoop Storytelling Series podcast. I'm Laura Wexler. And I'm Jessica Hinken. And this week on the podcast, Not Staying in Their Lane, two stories of doctors who refuse to confine their work to the hospital. So this first story is shared by Dr. Carolyn Sufrin, who's an OBGYN, who, as a young doctor, became alerted to a population of women that weren't receiving reproductive health care and has dedicated her life to it. In 2004, I was a first-year OBGYN resident in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I was on call one night, as I was many nights in a row, and sometime in the middle of my shift, I get a phone call, Carolyn, come to room four for delivery. So I'm running down the hall. And when you're an intern in OB, you're, you really have one goal, which is don't drop the baby. <laughs> so this is what was going through my mind as I was running to room four. So I open the door, I get into room four, and the scene is kind of like any other hospital birthing room, any over-medicalized Western hospital birthing room. There were IV poles, there was an electronic field monitor, there were lots of doctors and nurses, and there was a pregnant person who was about to push out her, her baby. So everything about it was pretty standard looking, except for one thing. The mom-to-be was shackled to the bed. This is not something you train for. This is not something I could have even imagined. I was so nervous, and my thoughts about dropping the baby were <laughs> quickly, they didn't dissipate but they were deepened by my fears of what if something happened, what if there was an emergency, and we couldn't do what we needed to do to help this person and her baby. Well, these thoughts were racing through my mind, and, and somehow um, the baby was born. Well, not somehow, but the <laughs> was strong and amazing, and, um, and I caught the baby. I didn't drop the baby. I didn't drop the baby. <laughs> Thank you. I didn't drop the baby. Um, I'm just going to hold this because I probably will drop this if I try to put it in. Um, So I I handed the baby to the mom, and she cradled it in her one unshackled arm. And in this moment, I was so deeply troubled. I was so terrified. I was troubled. I was terrified. I was overwhelmed much less so, I'm sure, than the mother. Um, But there were so many things running through my mind. I had never thought about the fact that there were women behind bars, let alone pregnant people. I had so many questions. What kind of prenatal care did she get? Did she get any? Why was she in jail at all? And why did she need to be shackled? Could she really escape in between her painful contractions with an epidural that numbed her legs? One thing I did know is that this was medically unsafe and deeply inhumane and unethical. And as these things went raced through my mind, I had other very practical questions like, 
what was going to happen to the prescriptions that I wrote for her chart at her hospital discharge? Would the jail fulfill those? Uh, and what would happen to this baby? So fast forward a few years after that, I finished my residency, never dropped a baby, um, and I moved out to San Francisco to do a fellowship in family planning at UCSF, and I was uh, encouraged to pursue my, my nascent interest in reproductive health care for incarcerated women, and so I reached out and, and pretty soon got connected to the medical director of the San Francisco County Jail, and I told him, I said, you know, I'm really interested in access to contraception and understanding what's happening and implementing, you know, expansion of contraception services for this population. And he said, okay, that sounds interesting and, and seems important. Why don't I give you a tour of the jail? Um, so I said, sure, that sounds great. So, um, so I got, got my clearance. He gave me a tour of the jail. I saw the housing units. Um, he gave me a tour of the clinic. And at the end of the tour, he said, so, Carolyn, what do you think? You want to do some clinical care here? That's not what I was expecting him to say. And uh, I, I knew that I should probably say yes. But I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Um, I did say yes. And uh, within a few months of being at an OBGYN at the San Francisco County Jail, I became quite overwhelmed with the, the contradictions that I was immersed in and that I was complicit in. Uh, things like I learned that incarcerated people have a constitutional right to health care, and they're the only people in our country with a constitutional right to health care. Right? So they, they get most of their rights stripped of them, yet they gain this right that you and I in the so-called free world do not have guaranteed as a right. I learned from my patients that many of them, jail was the only place they accessed medical care, the only place they got prenatal care. And the reasons for that were not immediately apparent and were, are many and, and complex and things that I explored over the next uh, several years and continue to explore. But for many, this was their medical home which is deeply troubling, right? I also learned that my stereotypes and expectations of the people who work behind bars were not necessarily consistently true. Now, I did see custody officers be uh, abusive to people and fulfill my stereotypes of them abusing their power, but I also saw custody officers comforting women experiencing miscarriages. I saw people show tremendous compassion, and I also saw healthcare providers in the jail acting more like custody officers and disciplinarians than healthcare providers. So a typical day in the jail clinic was, was very confusing in a lot of ways because on the one hand, here I was trying to provide care in a space of punishment. That's the biggest contradiction. And yet I was in this clinical space where there was a waiting area, there, were nurse, there was a nurse's station, there were three exam rooms, there was uh, there was a microscope to look at um, microscopy for, for various samples, um, and there was even an x-ray machine. I would, uh, I would call, call out to the, um, the waiting area and say, Miss Smith, you're next. And I would look Miss Smith in the eye and say, Hi, I'm Dr. Suffren. It's nice to meet you. How can I help you today? And Miss Smith was taken aback. This simple, simple pleasantry um, was, was shocking to her being who she was, an incarcerated person coming in and out of jail uh, for, for most of her adult life. Um, I also learned how medical power in jails is much different. It's similar in a lot of ways to the power and uh, authority that, that our society gives physicians in the community, but it's different. Things like ICE 
and a bottom bunk become medicalized. I had to write prescriptions for these very mundane things because they don't have any control over their, their living environment. And for a men- menopausal woman who's having a hot flash, she needs ice because that's about all she can do. And yet it became this highly sought-after commodity. So over time, as I became entrenched in this environment, I, I learned about, I sat within these contradictions. I took care of pregnant people. I took care of, of people throughout their reproductive lifespan. And I learned some of what happened to those babies. Stephanie gave birth while she was incarcerated at the jail. She gave birth at San Francisco General Hospital, the county hospital. And when it was time for the baby to be discharged, her mom came to the hospital, picked up the baby, took the baby home, and Stephanie got out a few weeks later and, uh, and was able to, to be with her baby, but not in those first several weeks. Kima, on the other hand, when she gave birth at the county hospital, she didn't have that kind of a plan. She didn't have that kind of a family member. Although she had designated her sister to take care of her newborn, turns out her sister had an open case with the child welfare agency, and they wouldn't allow Kima's newborn to go with the sister. And so that baby went into foster care, which just broke her heart. And I can still hear the wailing in her voice when she learned that. So Kima went back to jail, and she she tried as hard as she could to provide breast milk for her baby, who was still in the hospital for a little bit longer while they were trying to find a place in the foster care system for that baby. And I remember taking these precious bags of breast milk in a tote bag full of ice, putting it in the basket of my bicycle and riding the 10 minutes from the San Francisco jail to San Francisco General Hospital for that baby to get even just an ounce of that breast milk that she poured her heart into making. So I left San Francisco in 2014, and my clinical practice now is no longer in a jail. Uh, I still do obstetrics, and I still haven't dropped a baby. (laughs) Um, But I still do, uh, I have dedicated my career to improving reproductive health care for incarcerated people. So I conduct research uh, to try to understand the scope of the problems, to document how many pregnant people there are behind bars and what happens to those pregnancies, to understand the complexities of the, their motherhood experiences and how our society devastates them and their families. And I also am involved in advocacy efforts. Um, I, uh, I help write policies to, um, to try to standardize reproductive health care for incarcerated people um, at a national level, and I write policies around best practices. But I also know that really the best practices to improve reproductive health care for this population is for them not to be in, in jail or prison in the first place. And my advocacy also involves working closely with currently and previously incarcerated women who are leading the charge in helping to pass state laws that prohibit the shackling of pregnant people. And in 2004, when I started this journey, there was a state, Illinois, that had a law prohibiting shackling of pregnant people and people giving birth. And now, as of, uh, as of July of this year, there are now 40 states, plus the District of Columbia, and the federal government that have laws prohibiting this practice. But I also know that this is not enough. It still happens even when there are laws. And so I think about that. Um, I think about that night in Pittsburgh many years ago. I wonder what happened to that mom. I wonder if she's traumatized by this experience. I think about that baby who's now 18 years old. I wonder what their life is like and if they're even together. And I wonder what I can do 
where I did nothing in that delivery room, what can I do so that this can all be different? Thank you. This is such a classic light bulb moment of like, I'm going in to deliver a baby. Don't drop the baby. Oh my gosh, the woman's in shackles. Um, And how that pointed her in a direction that really has involved care and activism. She has worked on policies. And I believe she says it at the beginning, the end of her story, it's been a minute since I've listened to it, but just that she and others have been able to change the laws so that there are very few states where women are required to be shackled when they are giving birth. And when Dr. Sufrin started, it was the minority of states that allowed women to be unshackled. So there's some progress there and yet still so much to be made. We will be back with another story in a moment. Support for WYPR's podcasts comes from Catholic Charities. Celebrating its centennial in 2023, Catholic Charities is the largest private provider of social services in Maryland. Learn more about this movement to change lives at cc-md.org. This next storyteller, Dr. Joseph Sacron, is sharing a story of how, as a teenager, an experience that he had influenced both his practice and his point of view. Take a listen. So it was my senior year. It was a Friday night. And I had just walked into the house after my SAT prep class. And my parents were like peppering me with questions about how was the class? What did you learn? And my friend was in the driveway and he was waiting for me because we were about to go to the first high school football game of the year. Now I'm quickly getting changed and dressed. And as I'm rushing out the door, my father says, Joe, be careful and don't be home late. Now, of course, I said, yeah, yeah, dad, don't worry, and ran out. We went to the football game. You know, for those that know high school football, especially in Northern Virginia, it's not just about the game. It's also about the social interaction, hanging out with friends. And we had a fantastic time. It was amazing. And after the game, we went to a nearby park where we were spending time with friends, hanging out the way high school kids do. And I was knee-deep in conversation when all of a sudden there was this commotion. And I looked up and I saw these multiple flashes and heard these loud noises. And before I knew it, my entire body went numb. The people around me dispersed in slow motion and I knew something was terribly wrong. I ended up walking to the curb and I was wearing white that night, had a white shirt and white jeans and they were drenched in blood. And of course I was reaching into my pocket because I was trying to get the pack of cigarettes out of my pocket because my parents would whip my ass. (laughs) And I got to the curb and my friends, they saw that I was in trouble and they laid me down on the curb and I started choking on my blood. So they sat me up. And at that point, there was a medevac above us and the EMS had arrived. And I get into the back of this ambulance and they take me to Nova Fairfax Hospital. And on the way there, I could see myself, I could see myself answering the questions of the medic. I couldn't talk, I was just saying yes or no. And I get rolled into this trauma center and there's healthcare professionals, you know, gowned up, ready to do whatever they could to save my life. 
And I was 17, I was scared as hell. And in the corner, there was a resident and one of the docs arguing about what they should do. And as this was happening, the trauma surgeon, Dr. Bob Ahmed, walks in the room. And he looks at all this chaos and he says to them, what in the fuck are you all doing? I'll never forget it. He unlocked the gurney and he rolled me to the operating room. Now I'm laying down on the, on the operating room table. There's a bright light shining in my eyes. And that bright light went away because he leaned his head over me. And I can still see the white of his eyes. And he said, Joe, I have to do this to save your life. The next day I woke up, it was 12 o'clock, and I remember it so distinctly, the clock was right in front of me. I had just gotten my first job at Herschel Family Pet Center, and I was supposed to be at work at 12. So I was like, shit, I'm going to be late. <laughs> I looked around, and I could see my parents and my siblings, and there was tears coming down their eyes, and I knew something bad had happened. I would come to find out that I was shot in the throat with a 38 caliber bullet. I had a ruptured windpipe, the carotid artery, that blood vessel that runs blood to your brain, was injured, and as some of you can hear, I had a paralyzed vocal cord. After months of recovery, I was home at this point. I had a tracheostomy tube. I had these beet red scars up and down my neck, and I was standing in the bathroom, and I was looking in the mirror, and I was, I was pissed off. I was angry. What I didn't realize is my father was standing in the corner. And I think like, you know, any dad, he could see that look of devastation in my eyes. And Pops walked in and he said, look, Joe, he said, what happened to you was terrible. But either you can feel sorry for yourself, and I think, you know, tough love, especially from an immigrant dad. Or you can take this moment and turn it into something that impacts the lives of other people. And I think that's when everything kind of came together. It was that red light that I realized that I had the opportunity, the second chance, to give other people the same second chance that I was given. It's what inspired me to go into medicine. It's what inspired me to become a trauma surgeon. And at that time, I had no idea that I was going to be doing the stuff that I'm doing today because, as you'll hear, I'm working beyond the trauma center because what I realized is that Despite how good I may think I am, despite how awesome the Johns Hopkins Trauma Center is, when someone comes in that's shot in the head, there's very little that we can do. And the best medical treatment is prevention. And that's what led me to working really at the intersection of medicine, public health, and public policy. Some of you will remember in 2018, the NRA told doctors that they should stay in their lane. I remember I was, I was sitting just a stone's throw away from here at home, and I'm like, what the fuck is this? You know, we're like the ones at the center, right, of taking care of these patients. We're having to talk to these moms and dads and tell them that their child that left that morning is not coming home again. So that's when I got on Twitter and I said, I came up with the handle, this is our lane. And I think, you know, I, I had no idea at that point what was going to happen. What I realized, though, it was, a, it was an organic moment. Not just doctors. There were nurses, technicians, researchers, people across the entire healthcare spectrum that came, to, came together and said, this is our lane. 
And I think it taught me something incredibly powerful. When you look at us as healthcare professionals, right, and you think about some of the social issues our country is facing, whether it's gun violence or COVID or racism or health inequity or immigration or climate change or abortion, they're so interconnected into health. And we are trusted public messengers. So as I tell all my colleagues, we have both the opportunity and the responsibility to think beyond the operating room, beyond the trauma center, to try to change the lives of people. For far too long, a lot of us have sat on the sidelines, but we can't sit on the sidelines any longer. And I would just say to all of you here, you can be part of that solution as well. The most important thing that you can do in the next few weeks is vote. Thank you. So, yes, we titled this episode Not Staying in Their Lane because, as um, as Joe, as Dr. Sakharin says in his story, he and other doctors were admonished by the NRA for speaking out um, in support of gun control. And they were told to stay in their lane, which is to say they are about taking care of people who are hurt by guns. It is not their job, according to the NRA, to um, be activists for policy change. And so he started this, you know, this is my lane um, hashtag, and since then has really been able to galvanize medical personnel and others to um, so, so to rally for gun control. You know, the idea that being that gun control is the best method of prevention, which is the best way of taking care of people and best way of preventing gun violence. So thank you for listening to our two stories today of um, doctors who are also act- activists. Um, it's great to have you all listening. We invite you to visit us at stoopstorytelling.com where you can learn about upcoming events and listen to episodes and stories from previous Stoop shows. We want to thank Maureen Harvey for producing the podcast. And you can find us on social media at Stoop Storytelling. We will see you back very soon with more stories from the Stoop. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.